I'm Chip Branditz. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 21st, 2017. Coming up, science journalist David Biello will discuss his book, The Unnatural World, The Race to Remake Civilization in Earth's Newest Age. As he notes, it's not just about saving planet Earth, it's about saving ourselves. We'll begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A month ago, the Penn Stars Telescope in Hawaii discovered a faint object quickly streaking across the sky. Such, ob such objects, asteroids and comets, are seen all the time, but after analysis of its motion, this object was extremely unusual. The trajectory indicated it came from outside our solar system, passing through quickly on a path bent by the sun's gravity, but with a speed that will make it continue out into the galaxy, never to return. The asteroid has been named Oumuamua. It's a Hawaiian word meaning, fittingly, a messenger from afar arriving first. It's the first interstellar visitor we've detected among the approximately 750,000 known, known asteroids and comets in our solar system. Astronomers around the world race to point their telescopes at this asteroid, and what they've measured is surprising. This is a very elongated and dense rocky object. The asteroid's light curve, which is a measure of how bright and dark it gets as it spins every 7.3 hours, indicates that it's about 400 meters, that's about one quarter mile, long and only a tenth as wide. That 10 to 1 aspect ratio is more elongated than any asteroid or comet observed in our solar system to date. The fact that Oumuamua holds together spinning so quickly and is so elongated indicates that it is dense, composed of rock and possibly metals. Astronomers also looked for a gas coma around it, like would be seen around a comet, and it is heated by the sun and ices evaporate into gas. Even though this asteroid passed quite close to the sun, even closer than the orbit of Mercury, the researchers found no sign of coma gases around the object, further indicating that it has no water or ice and is mostly rocky. They also measured the asteroid's color, <clears throat> finding that the surface was reddened, most likely due to the effects of irradiation from cosmic rays over hundreds of millions of years passing through the galaxy. Now that more telescope surveys are coming online that could find and track such ob objects, it is possible that we will discover many more interstellar interlopers, and they will provide clues to the formation of our solar system as well as planetary systems around other stars. These results were published online yesterday in the journal Nature. As many parents and educators know, talking to babies a lot helps them develop healthy language and other cognitive functions. A new study shows that babies as young as six months old may sense that certain words and even concepts are related to each other, and that that understanding is enhanced by the baby's interactions with adults. The authors of the study also discovered that the more exposed infants were to adults talking to them about things near to them, the babies could better identify a picture of an object, say, juice or milk, when that item was identified out loud. The study, led by researchers at Duke University, went something like this. First, 51 healthy, 
six-month-old infants took part in an eye-tracking experiment in a lab. Each baby sat on the lap of a parent, presumably its own, and the baby could not see the computer screen. The researchers recorded each infant's gaze as it was shown two images on a gray background. The parent was prompted through a set of headphones to say a sentence that contained one of the items, and then the researchers tracked how long babies looked at the item that the parent had mentioned. The research suggests that when babies look more at the image of the object after it was named by the parent than they did before they heard anything, well, they know something about what that word actually means. Bottom line, the more you talk to your baby, the better. For a little history of science, 158 years ago, on Friday, November 24th, that is, Charles Darwin's book on the origin of species was first published in London, England. There were only 1,250 copies made on the first printing. The book was an instant bestseller, and it shocked many. It posited that evolution happens through natural selection, and that creation must have thus taken a lot longer, shall we say, than the biblical seven days. Granted, the theory of natural selection had already been swirling through the scientific community by then. After countless editions, Origin of Species is still in print and selling briskly, in fact, even if it has been banned from high schools in recent years in some states where creationists dominate politics. And on the local contemporary scene, science calendar, on the local contemporary science calendar, here's something for bird lovers. On December 4th, Jefferson County will hold a beginning birders orientation in the city of Golden. It's part of a citizen science effort to document birds sighted within the county. The orientation will include skills for identifying and documenting birds, including the app called eBird. The event will take place from 6 to 7.30 p.m. on December 4th at Jeffco Open Space in Golden. For more info, go to www.jeffco.us and click on Calendar Events. Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. Our guest today has taken a huge topic for a book, the planet, some of the problems we've created, and how the heck we can save ourselves, save humanity, that is, not just the planet itself. David Biello is a science journalist whose debut book was published a year ago. It's called The Unnatural World, A Race to Remake Civilization in Earth's Newest Age. The paperback edition comes out next month, and the topic is as timely, for better or for worse, as it was a year ago. Biello is science curator at TED, that's Technology, Entertainment, and Design, as you all, I'm sure, have heard the TED Talks, and he is also a contributor to Scientific American. As his book title suggests, the book explores how we humans have altered nature in so many ways, from burning fossil fuels and warming the planet, to tearing down tropical rainforests and other forests, to killing off so many species. But this newest epoch, which Biello and others call the Anthropocene, is not just how we're making things worse. It's also about how we're stepping up to be part of the solution. 
Biello brings forth some audacious characters, scientists, inventors, and others, including Elon Musk, who are working to save our home, to save us from massive and disruptive, or with disruptive technological discoveries, such as fertilizing the ocean with iron, cloning woolly mammoths, or creating and popularizing electric cars. David Biello joins us from a phone booth of sorts in the open seating area in the TED office in New York City. David, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with your title itself. It's The Newest Age. What is this newest age? Obviously, we're not talking about the new age of sorts. No, it's a a very different kind of new age. (laughs) It's called the Anthropocene, and this means the new age of man. Uh, And essentially, it's to recognize the fact that people have altered the planet so pervasively, profoundly, and most importantly, perhaps permanently, that we deserve our own marker in um, the geologic timescale. Quite a distinction, prouder otherwise. So I want to get to a lot of the areas you explore in the book. But first, um, one thing I found was really moving was you show that, you know, this is a sweeping journey you take figuratively and, and physically actually around the globe, looking at these problems, looking at some of the potential solutions. Um, but you also take a really personal, pretty self-reflective look at our role, but your role in particular, sort of how you're living life. And I know this is not a big part of the book, but I think it really zooms in on kind of why is it important to you. So if you could read that passage, if I remember, it's on page 138. You are correct, and I'll be happy to. Okay. Here we go. At the end of the day, I eat more food trucked in from afar, possibly even delivered by car as well from some restaurant nearby, maybe even pizza from a coal-fired oven to maximize my greenhouse gas contribution. The flowers I give my wife say nothing so much as, look at me, I'm happy to kill for love. Then I relax with my family, enjoying television or a movie displayed on a screen made flat by the ingenious use of yet more precious metals and minerals. Those movies are environmental extravaganzas, lighting the night, building fake cities, employing more computing power than once tracked the possibility of global thermonuclear war to conjure up living nightmares. Or perhaps I find myself in hotel world, that safe, anesthetized cocoon replicated across the globe with synthetic fossil fuel-based fabrics, electric light, and charging outlets. If I do, I most likely got there by airplane, spewing CO2 high in the atmosphere where it can trap heat for millennia, along with the water ba- along with the water vapor that forms contrails, scarring the sky, at least for a time. I take off my cotton clothes and slip beneath cotton sheets, the natural fabric employed in vast quantities for its softness and durability, but available only thanks to a copious quantity of deadly pesticides made from fossil fuels that can poison the land. Then there's all that water used to grow puffball blooms in the harsh desert of Arizona, so much so that the Colorado River no longer reaches the sea in Mexico, an entire paradise of marsh and wildlife drunk up to provide cities in the desert with flush toilets and bountiful crops from California to New Mexico. I sleep well because all this can be ignored, not exactly safely, but for longer than my 40-odd years on the planet. Modern life is a series of abstractions that insulate the lucky among us from reality, whether, whether it is where meat comes from or who pays the cost for our gadget lust. As the Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari likes to say, consumerism is the first religion in history whose followers actually do what they are asked to do. Whew. 
So yeah. <laughs> so here we are. Here you are in New York City. I mean, on the one hand, it sounds like all right. Are we supposed to feel guilty and thus feel better? <laughs> no, I, I. It's not about uh, feeling guilty so much as uh, being a little more cognizant of the impact uh, some of us. The lucky among us, like myself, uh, are having on the planet because it's kind of the um, blithe ignorance of our of our impacts that 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 enables them. Um, and once you become a little bit more aware, then then perhaps um, you know you don't fly to that conference uh, in London. Instead, you you join by teleconference, or uh, you know you don't buy the um, flowers uh for your wife so as to yeah for my wife although that's questionable right uh, on a personal level um, right uh yeah just so that there's kind of more space uh for the flowers that uh, the pollinators um need um so i, I really uh, obviously i wrote this book in an attempt to um raise these issues to a little bit more prominence and, and perhaps change the way we, we think about them. And, and part of that is, is, is just making us aware of the, uh, of the impacts we might be having. Right. And I know this is not uh, sort of a treatise or, you know, my 12 months living off the grid kind of book. There, no, there definitely are plenty not. Of those. Um, I do want to have you <laughs> zoom in on, so what were a couple of the examples? You mentioned many where there are some of the key planet warming examples such as you know the acidification of the oceans and then some of the solutions right. to address them but first how about you know how do the oceans look yeah well the, the anthropocene what i like about this idea the anthropocene and and it's not a great word but uh, but the idea is is pretty great is that it tries to bring together in a in a more holistic way all the impacts that we're having. So we th we hear about climate change or we hear about uh, the decline of bees or we hear about problems in the ocean. We think those are all kind of separate issues. We hear about inequality for that matter and we think that it, that is a separate issue from uh from the environment. Um but all these things are interrelated and hopefully an idea like the Anthropocene can help us see these challenges in a more holistic way because that's honestly the only way we're going to solve them. When we try to solve these things kind of in their own independent silos, uh, a great example being ethanol from corn, um, you, you end Which up Which seems so promising just a decade ago. Exactly. Okay. That's right. An alternative fuel, get us off oil, all, uh, energy security, all that. You exacerbate other issues like, uh, uh, you know, the dead zone at the mouth of the Mississippi uh, and other impacts. You mean from all the nitrogen um, fertilizer that it takes to grow more or... Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, and that's why the dead zone continues to expand. Um, so we are having a huge impact on the oceans. And uh, for those of us who live uh, far away from the oceans, um, that's kind of out of sight, out of mind. In fact, uh, we tend to dump everything in the ocean that we, we never want to see again because, uh, uh, you know, we're land animals after all. Um, but the reality is uh, this planet should not be called Earth. It should be called ocean because the oceans cover 70% of it. Right. And uh, as the oceans go, uh, so goes the planet. And uh, as you mentioned, because of all the carbon dioxide we're putting into the air as a result of burning fossil fuels, well, most of that's ending up in the ocean. And what that does is, is it turns the ocean slightly more like that uh, a can of Coke you might open it mm. makes it slightly more acidic. And this makes life slightly harder 
for the shelled tiny little plants of the sea, the diatoms, the phytoplankton. And guess what? They're responsible for at least a third, maybe as much as half of the oxygen we all breathe. Um, so they're pretty Yeah, important. it's interesting how, um, I mean, there's so much more written about the Amazon and the tropical rainforest as the lungs of the planet. And that's certainly true to some extent, but the oceans are far more, right? That's exactly right. And like I said, out of sight, out of mind. We don't think about the ocean because, again, we're land animals. Maybe if we were dolphins, it'd be different. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the ideas or one of the, uh, you know, kind of unusually optimistic people I met in this book is a, is a fellow by the name of Viktor Smetichek, and he has this idea of um, fertilizing the oceans to kind of try to help some of those tiny plants of the sea do a little bit better. And the upside of that, in addition to, um, you know, helping out with, uh, uh, you know, the crisis in the ocean, is that, you know, when plants do photosynthesis, they take CO2 out of the air or out of the ocean water, and they uh, put it in their bodies. They turn it into food, right? And then when those plants die, potentially they can sink to the bottom of the ocean. And over many, many eons, this is actually one of the ways in which Earth kind of self-regulated the climate mm, before right. before people got involved. So the idea is to kind of speed that up. To, and instead and of speed waiting it up by actually, time, by actually fertilizing it with iron. That's right? correct. And, and how? Yep. So you, you set out to sea in a, in a tiny little boat. Yeah. So far, they've only done this in kind of scientific experiments. And so the, first, you have to prove that this actually works, right? So Victor took a, a cruise down to the southern ocean around Antarctica. And down there, you know, it's very windy and wavy. And they have these things called gyres, which are basically whirlpools. And that's a nice self-contained piece of the ocean that you can fertilize and yeah. see exactly what happens. Uh, so they did that, and lo and behold, the plankton bloomed. They did, in fact, sink to the bottom of the ocean and conceivably sequestered you know, the carbon that they sucked up for millennia, if not uh, eons. And before we move on to that and potential unintended consequences, I'm going to take a little station break. For those who are joining in a bit late, you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and we're talking with David Biello. He's a science journalist and author, author of the book, The Unnatural World, A Race to Remake Civilization in Earth's Newest Age. So, David, um, yeah, see a bit more about in this particular area in the Southern Ocean, it worked. But yeah. how did they so, know that? And then I know there was a flurry and has been of controversy about what some of the unintended consequences could be, not just there, but more broadly. That's right. Although it wasn't, so it, it, gets, it gets more complicated, of course, yeah. always. <laughs> this is the Anthropocene. So uh, <laughs> that's the scientific side of fertilizing the ocean. There is a business side of fertilizing the ocean. Um, and there have been the folks who have tried to turn this into a, kind of a money-making opportunity, either for uh, people paying them to reduce uh, CO2 pollution uh, or people paying them to kind of fertilize the ocean so that fish will prosper. Um, and in particular, this one um, uh, kind of rogue entrepreneur, Russ George, uh, basically took it upon himself to go off the coast of uh, British Columbia and, uh, and, and repeat the experiment, except without any of the scientific controls, uh, without as much uh, kind of scientific rigor, um, and, and simply to um, uh, receive payment from a particular group of people hmm. in British Columbia. Uh, and that is what caused a lot of the outrage around iron fertilization because it became clear 
And this is one of the problems with this broad suite of technologies called geoengineering. It became clear that they're cheap enough that folks can kind of undertake this on their own. Um, and that's, that's worrying because these are some pretty severe, um, you know, or pretty hmm. intense ways of messing about with the, uh, with the Earth's largest systems. So when you think about it, climate change is obviously geoengineering. We're putting CO2 into the sky. It's trapping more heat. These are other things like climate change that perhaps certain individuals are rich enough to kind of undertake on their own, or certain nation states for that matter. Right. Um, and that's one of the big concerns. And then so, the other concern are the dead zones that I, that I mentioned earlier, that, that somehow um, we would end up triggering you know, vast, even bigger dead zones um, across the ocean by over-fertilizing. Right. So for now, it's kind of uh, on hold as a scientific and business experiment, right? That's right. There, there are some, the, the business side is definitely on hold. The, uh, the science side, there are some efforts, uh, particularly in uh, New Zealand and Australia, which happen to be close to Antarctica, to, to do a little bit more uh, research to better understand this mechanism, because frankly, we might need it. We're not doing a great job of restraining fossil fuel burning. Yeah, to say the um, least. We're, yeah, we're putting more and more, C we continue to put more and more CO2 into the air. Um, and, uh, and most scientists uh, now agree that uh, something is going to have to be done uh, to take it back. The good news is, you know, there's a great technology to do that already. They're called plants and phytoplankton, like we yeah. talked about. Um, but they may not be enough, and we may need to invent uh, even yet more mechanisms uh, to do so. And for so those who read the book. I wrote book, about another one. Well, and I want to say for those who read the book, they can also uh, learn about little experiment to actually dump trees, like more plants into the ocean, adding to that controversy. Okay. But we only have a few minutes. And I think since more people know about Elon Musk and some of them are driving, if not his, Tesla's, but other electric cars, I want to have you say a bit about this whole other area you explore in the book, and that is cloning. I mean, some say... Yes, it's about bringing back the woolly mammoth or the passenger pigeon, maybe not the dodo, but is it? I mean, how, what, what is it and how viable and, and actually desirable do you think it is right now? Yeah. So the book is really a, a, a tour of the unusual optimists all around the world, <laughs> uh, you know, trying to make for a better Anthropocene. You know, it's been pretty bad so far, so let's try to make it a bit better. And one of the methods uh, for doing that has been uh, kicked off by better uh, technology for for um, uh, tinkering with genetics, um, and the idea is, goes by the name de-extinction, um, which is another uh, maybe not great word, uh, but the idea is to uh, resurrect, frankly, uh, some of the species that we've uh, hunted to extinction, whether that be the woolly mammoth or the passenger pigeon. Uh, or stellar sea cow, you name it, um, they've thought about bringing it back. Um, the problem being that we don't have a good enough handle on how genetics actually work uh, to make this a viable concern to date. But the research into it is kind of providing some side benefits, such as improving the genetics of creatures that are still with us, like, say, the black-footed ferret, 
um, but are, are facing their own genetic challenges. Um, but perhaps we can harness this technology developed for de-extinction. For instance, what, taking some. genetic traits of one that could live in severe drought kind of environment and implanting that, that of sorts into the black-footed ferret or... That's right. And also just bringing back some of the genetic diversity that was lost when they were kind of dwindled down to, I think it was eight individuals. So you can imagine there's not a lot of genetic diversity left at that point. But guess what? In all those uh, museum drawers in, <laughs> in, in Colorado and elsewhere, uh, there's a lot of genetic diversity. And with these new tools, it can be uh, harvested and, and, and brought back into the living population. Yeah, it's fascinating. And so do you I mean, personally, we just have a minute left. Do you see, do you envision, do you want actually to bring species back? Well, I personally am not uh, uh, on, on, on any effort to bring back uh, extinct species. They are, you know, often extinct, not just because we hunted them to death, but because their entire habitat uh, has disappeared or been transformed, and the the world has has moved on for better or worse. Yeah, so and maybe a say, fool's errand to try to bring them back. Yeah, and who's to say what that habitat would be and how they would adapt to it? How would they would adapt to the whole exactly. predator prey relationship? But it's fascinating. So there's so much in this book. I encourage those to read it, and hopefully we'll have David back on the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Always love talking about this stuff. That was David Biello, author of the book, The Unnatural World, The Race to Remake Civilization in Earth's Newest Age. The paperback edition has or is just about to come out. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by myself, Susan Moran, and engineered by Chip Grantis. Additional contributions from Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Roy Orbison. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you could subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Susan Moran.